This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery that is simple and intuitive. Snap's deployment pipelines deliver fast feedback and can push healthy builds to multiple environments automatically or on demand. Snap integrates deeply with GitHub and has great support for different languages, data stores, and testing frameworks. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many more. Try Snap for free. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrogues. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on salt-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code RubyRogues, you'll get a $10 credit. Welcome to episode 249 of the Ruby Rogues. Today on our panel, we have Opti Grimm. Hello from Tennessee. Coraline Ada Emke. I'm just a dwarf standing on the shoulders of a giant who's standing on the shoulders of another dwarf. It's basically dwarves and giants all the way down. And I am Jessica Kerr, better known as Jessatron. Today we have a special guest, and I'm super excited to talk to Dan Liu. He has a post that several of us wanted to pick, but Coraline was first on an earlier episode, about the normalization of deviance. And I'm super excited about deviance, but this whole normalization thing is kind of ruining it for me. Dan, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, uh, I'm Dan Liu. So I used to work for Center, a small startup, and then I worked for Google, and then I worked for Microsoft. And like, I think these are all good companies to work for. Two of them are considered like really, really good companies to work for. I think the third is considered still above average. But it's sort of funny how they still have all these things that are really screwed up. And it's not like them in particular, right? I talk to my friends at companies that are considered like really great places to work, and they still have all these things that are like really screwed up, right? And so I wrote this blog post, and it's just sort of asking, why is it that places, like even places that are really good, are still also really screwed up? So Dan, you do hardware now, and you used to do software? Almost the opposite, sorry. I, I used to do like purely hardware, and now I'm sort of moving to doing more and more software. Oh, cool. Okay. What kind of hardware stuff did you used to do? Uh, so I used to design CPUs. Well, this is sort of design as like, if you talk to a CPU designer, they might not say that, right? I used to do, it was a startup, so sort of everything you would do inside a CPU, including design, verification, writing microcode, a bunch of other stuff. And then I sort of moved on to some products. You know, so at Google, there's a thing I can't talk about because they're like super secretive infrastructure at Microsoft. Uh, but they're both like hardware accelerator things. The Google thing is, you know, something or other. Microsoft, we're trying to figure out how to make uh, virtualized networks faster. Um, and this is something that's sort of this trend that's been happening over the past, I don't know, five, six years, right? Like CPUs don't really get faster anymore, but people still want things to get faster. So you try to move more things into hardware to like continue making things faster. That's interesting. Are we adding layers? Interesting. So I think a lot of it is like it's sort of punching through layers, if that makes sense. Like if you look at your, just for example, right, like your TCP stack, there's like all these layers between you and the user application, right? And then actually sending it like a packet out on the wire. Uh, but if you look at RDMA, this stands for uh, Remote Direct Memory Access, right? Like you will punch a hole basically into the user space memory and user space in user space memory you can just go well you actually have a map to somewhere else but you basically just write something right and that can just go out on the wire directly to somewhere else and so we're sort of i mean in some sense we're adding layers right but like the abstraction will like blow a hole through a bunch of different layers because it's like extremely slow actually to like do a syscall and do something right and so a lot of these things will like just blow away the operating system and let you touch like touch the hardware pretty much directly that sounds way above my pay grade yeah, that's that's like really fascinating. And no, you're totally not talking too much. This you're supposed to talk. <laughs> um, yeah, we're just we're we're kind of like whoa. That's really fascinating because when we write software, we're usually like adding layers of abstraction, and then it's pretty fabulous that people like you can come back and then punch through the abstraction right where it counts to make it pass, <laughs> like a superhero breaking through a brick wall. Yeah, and meanwhile, the rest of us can continue to write to the abstraction so that we don't uh, mess things up. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things is, right, like a, a thing for cloud vendors especially, so, you know, Microsoft, you know, Google, Amazon, is that 
behind the scenes, people want to make the abstraction the same, right? Like, no one really wants to make people have to rewrite everything. So they're not. They, so people still want to make it look like you're writing to TCP or UDP or whatever, right? And behind the scenes, they can make it look like anything they want. But it sort of ends up being. I think it's. I, I don't actually do the software layer, but I think it's actually quite painful if you're actually doing that, right? Because it means you have this legacy interface. It's like Windows or whatever, right? And you have to like make everything behave exactly the same while underneath it's completely different, right? That's what a lot of writing software comes down to, though. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Yeah, make things look easy when they aren't. Easy is really hard. Uh, for our listeners, I wanted to mention that the blog post that Dan wrote that I keep talking about is at danlu.com slash wat. That's D-A-N-L-U-U dot com slash W-A-T. In case you want to pause the episode and read it. Yeah, which is not a bad idea. So should we go on to the article? Let's do it. Okay, cool. Dan, do you want to describe like what made you want to write this? Yeah, I mean, so part of it was just, uh, I don't know, I, I feel like I shouldn't talk too much about my team at Microsoft, right? but part of it was just some things uh, on my team that were, I don't know, in, in my opinion, non-optimal. And it's that and just talking to my friends, and I'll just hear these stories from friends of mine. Again, I, I guess I shouldn't say anything that could be de-anonymized, but like, they'll, they'll tell me about stuff like, oh, we don't have version control here, or we, <gasps> hey, we, we, we don't have tests. And, you know, these are companies that aren't, you know, it's not just like uh, what person where they're just like making MVP, right? And I'm talking about companies that uh, they actually <laughs> they produce a platform that a company's rely on or they produce a thing that users actually use. And this sounds like pretty shocking, right? But then, you know, I talk to my friends, I, I say the same thing, right? Uh, hey, we don't have X. And people are like, uh, are you kidding? Like, are you like trolling us or, or is this for real, right? Uh, and so I don't think my company's actually any better about this. It's just because I work here, I sort of get used to the things that are strange you know, about this place, right? So you made an observation that's kind of industry-wide that everyone has something like that that they're doing that just makes you say, what? Yeah, I think so, right? I mean, some, it's, it's not to say that all places are the same. Some places are better than others, but I, I've never heard of a place that doesn't have, you know, at least some things that are, like, really, really strange to outsiders. Yeah, you mentioned in that post that it makes sense to do things like skip tests. I, I'm not going to say it ever makes sense to skip version control. Uh-uh. <laughs> but some things, like tests that when you're trying to determine whether something is useful, you're in that MVP phase, is this even going to be worth anything? You skip that. And that a lot of new companies, as they increase in value and suddenly they have something to lose in the case of messing it up really badly, they don't lose that culture of, yeah, we just need to get stuff to production. Tests aren't the norm here. At Stripe right now, we're totally in that transition of, we have proven that this product is super useful, we're expanding it, and we're going back and improving reliability. But it is really hard to change what is valued in people. Yeah, when I talked to my friends at the startups, and I was actually at a startup for a while, there's this thing that I've seen, and I don't think anyone wants this, but it's just a thing that naturally happens. So you have this product group, or whoever it is that's basically responsible for making the product more awesome, and they're great, right? Uh, the product has grown, the company's worth billions of dollars, you know, Curves are going up into the right. People are super happy. But it means that if they ask for something, they get it, right? And infrastructure is this thing that, like, people understand is important. Like, if you ask them, are tests important? Is infrastructure important? They'll say yes, right? But when it comes down to it, if product wants a thing and infrastructure says we can't do that, that's not stable, that thing is going to happen, right? And it's, like, very hard to transition from this point where product is all-powerful and can ask for whatever they want, right, to where infrastructure can actually push back and say, no, no, we can't do this, right? Because it, it will, in the long run, slow us down. Because like, product has, like, basically provided, like, all the value to the company, you know, to that point. Right, and I see this at a lot of different companies. I don't actually know how to make this change happen. Like I've seen companies that have been past the change, right? But I've never actually experienced that change itself. I'd be super interested in knowing what that's like. Dan, you mentioned before the show that one way to get from these surprising deviant practices toward a safer, safer place to be is through one employee who is acting against their own interests. There's this great blog post by Yossi Credin where he sort of describes, in his opinion, sort of how this happens. So he's a manager at, I believe, an Israeli startup, uh, Mobileye, that's doing pretty well. And it's sort of his opinion that, like, in general, change comes from the top, right? Because if a manager sort of wants something, right, even if they don't say they want it, their employees are smart enough to sort of know what's going on, right? They, they can see who gets promoted and who, you know, who's actually ordered, right? And they will do things the manager wants, even if it's not what the manager says they want. The alternative is a completely unreasonable employee uh, can just say, hey, I really, really strongly believe this. Let me just do this thing, right? Uh, and this is like totally not their best interest, right? Because uh, it's not what their manager wants. It's not what their like, management chain wants, right? And so most of the time when people do this, it doesn't work out very well for them. But sometimes if you're unreasonable for long enough, this actually works out. You can sort of convince people around you that this is actually the right thing to do. 
Um, this actually matches my experience, at least in, from what I've seen when people do, do this, right? It usually doesn't work out. Every once in a while, it actually does work out. I'm hoping someone will tell me I'm totally wrong. This blog post is wrong, right? Uh, and this is actually a great thing to do because there's things I believe in, right? And sometimes I do them, sometimes I don't. But I don't want to, like, I don't like the idea, even though this, again, it's not just my experience. I don't like the idea that you're sort of like damaging your career uh, by sort of doing what you think to be the right thing. I think what it might come down to is some people have the privilege to deviate from a norm. And we would prefer it that when that deviation occurs, that they're in a, that's in an attempt to make things better. But I think you have to be at a particular point in your career. You have to have a certain amount of social, political capital within your company to be able to start being honorary and doing the right thing that is different from what everyone else is doing and sort of putting that change from the bottom. Quick clarification. Can you just give like one example of what you mean by a manager who says they want one thing but actually wants something else? I've got an example. One example would be we value software that doesn't fail. We value uptime and reliability. But I would like to take this time to thank all the people who worked so hard to deal with this fire that happened yesterday and stayed late to put out this calamity that happened. And when the emphasis is on, oh, thank you so much for fighting the fire, and I don't hear anything about so-and-so wrote a test that caught this bug before our productions ever, our customers ever saw it, uh, then the managers are saying they value reliability. They're valuing reliability in the company, but they're valuing firefighting in people. So when the medals get handed out... Exactly. Another example would be we favor hiring diversity. So everyone reach out through your networks and bring in as many people as you can to hire. And your network consists of all cishet white guys. You know, the, the manager can like have a strong desire for diverse hiring, but not do anything that actually supports diverse hiring. And maybe even set up press releases or set it as a company goal and not actually accomplish anything, which of course never happens. Yes, because if you if you reward individual people for submitting resumes, they're just going to submit the ones that come to the top of their head, which is not necessarily the most diverse. Uh, one thing we've done at Stripe is ask people to specifically look through their network. Here's a Facebook graph query, run this, and find people that you know that maybe you haven't thought of to submit, but would improve our diversity. When I read this post, um, and it's a great post, I agree, about people saying that they, that they value one thing, but showing that they value something else. It made kind of a weird connection for me with something that I'd read recently. Jessica, I think it was something that you recommended. It was uh, one of Mark Manson's blog posts, The Most Important Question of Your Life, I think it's called. Maybe it might have been somebody else who recommended it. But I don't know, it's a weird connection, but it's, it's a blog. It's one of these like personal improvement blo uh, blog posts, but it talks about how there's what people think they want, and then there's what they show that they want. And... And he uses the example of like, you know, wanting, spending his whole like young adulthood thinking that he definitely wanted to be a rock star, but he never actually wanted to spend, you know, late nights driving a rickety old van to some venue for, for pocket change, you know, or spend hours and hours and hours practicing. And he was talking about how you have to actually want you know, you have to actually want that part. You have to want the practice part, you know, for fitness. You have to want the endless burning sensation in your muscles as well as the uh, the outcome. And it's a weird connection, but it just seemed like a personal version of this organizational malady where, you know, there's what you say you want, but then there's what you show you want. Yeah, then there's rewarding the activity that leads to what you say you want. Dan, did you have an example? Yeah, so you know, I was actually just thinking about this, and I think it's like, Pretty, something I've noticed at companies I've worked for, I guess I will try not to name companies and specific things, right? But like, there's one company I worked for, um, and, and they'll say that like, all kinds of things are important to them, right? X is important, Y is important. But if you look at the, like, who gets promoted, right? You look at the technical fellows, of which there are like, maybe 10 or 11, they're more than half infrastructure people, right? And if you look you know, ge just generally up the promotion track, right? It, it's mostly infrastructure people. It's like, very heavily disproportionate infrastructure people. And so they'll say they want like, you create a great user experience and all this other stuff, right? But what they really want to do is build like, really cool infrastructure. I mean, which is fine. Like, I, I like building cool infrastructure, right? But it means that some areas are just sort of neglected, right? I, see, I guess it's the opposite of the product focus thing we're talking about earlier. And you can see like, the reverse in a lot of other companies. Companies, right, where they say they really care, like you said about uptime or whatever, right? But you look at like who's actually getting promoted, who gets paid well, right? And it's not the infrastructure people, right? So then it's pretty clear they don't actually care. They just, you know, but it's something they pay lip service to. Do you think that the people who are setting goals like that are aware of the contradiction? Do they think that 
maybe their actions don't have consequences or they think that just saying it is enough or what do you think is going on in their heads? Yeah, I don't know. I think it depends a lot, right? Like, I mean, this is something that I, I don't know. I feel like it's hard to generalize too much about because at some companies, right? So at Google, for example, they sort of try to normalize promotions. So when you get, when you go for promotion, you go to this committee and the committee doesn't know your work. They might not even know the area that you work in, right? Um, and they sort of look at this file, uh, you get peer reviewed and they decide whether or not you should promote it. So for them, it's like they sort of have a standard uh, for what it means to get promoted. But at Microsoft, my understanding is that a manager can just promote you, right, if they want to. And so I guess it's hard to, like, say that, you know, it's a general class of thing across the companies, right? So if at Microsoft, if a manager says a thing and, you know, says they want it and then they don't promote people who do it, that's, like, pretty, a pretty clear, like, local thing, right? They could have promoted the person and they didn't. I mean, obviously, as you get higher, this eventually isn't true. Your manager can't promote you to, like, CEO or, or even to, like, technical fellow or whatever, right? But, but in general, uh, for levels most people are at, they can just reach in and give you a promotion. But a place like Google where, like, your promotion goes to a committee or there's some just general standard of what you should do. It's possible the person actually believes it and really wants it, but they can't because the, the company culture, for whatever reason, just doesn't believe this thing is important or, you know, the committee doesn't believe it's important or, or whatever. So certain important pieces and precautions can be neglected. I have an example of the irrational employee who gets things changed. Uh, and to Coraline's point, uh, he has a lot of social capital. So my friend Doug has worked at this insurance company for like 10 years and he's a Linux admin. He was a developer before that. And now he's finally like reached the point where he's totally overwhelmed with server requests and can't possibly keep up with them. And so he's implementing DevOps. He's pushing this through and that the company's helping in little ways, but really it's him saying, no, I am not going to stay up till two in the morning doing your server requests, but I will stay up until two in the morning automating this service request. And he has that social capital. And frankly, he's going directly against what his manager tells him to do because his manager just wants him to sit there and close tickets. But fortunately for Doug, he like has political connections above his manager. So he just goes over his manager's head and does this stuff. And it's completely irrational. But I mean, what's the worst they can do? Fire him. He will get another job because he's doing DevOps. I think that brings up an interesting point, Jessica. It made me think of it when you talked about the manager wanting them to close tickets. I think sometimes we assign metrics to things that we want to change, and they may, in fact, be the wrong metrics. We're not measuring what we think we're measuring. Like, that manager might say, oh, tickets are a great way to measure that we're actually getting things done, when he's not measuring the fact that that it's an inefficient way to get things done, and not, not that inefficiency is invisible, which is why your friend is doing things a different way. So I wonder if there are other examples where the fault is in our measurement um, as much as it is in a mismatch between our actions and our intentions. At least this is something I've definitely seen a lot, uh, not directly because I usually work in like low-level areas where the, where the metrics more obviously are, are sort of good or bad. But like I've definitely seen this in other product groups where you know their goal is to get more daily active users or their goal is to get more conversions, right? So what do they do? They pop up this huge window in your face. They opt you stuff. They do all this stuff that like you really don't want as a user. And in the long run, it's terrible, right? But it sort of works in the short run. This graph goes up. It's like, look at this. We have more users. This is great. People get promoted. Uh, and then afterwards, you know, maybe it doesn't work out well, but people got promoted. And that's sort of, you know, in the short run, what people are sort of getting for, right? Oh, yeah. There's a thing here. The danger of success. Sometimes the worst thing you can do is succeed and learn from that success. Because there's a cognitive bias, which really makes a lot of sense, of this worked in the past, therefore we will keep doing this. But often the environment has changed around you. You have more competition now. Your software is bigger and just thinking you can hold the whole thing in your head doesn't work anymore, but it worked for you before so you can get stuck in that rut. You think that as software developers, we'd be better at thinking about this sort of thing because we like to pride ourselves on doing things like testing, and validating our abstractions. But it seems like we are just as guilty of cognitive bias and cognitive shortcuts and pattern matching as everyone else. Yeah, it's so funny. I feel like software developers, we sort of, uh, as a group, have these things that we feel like we're good at. But when I talk to my friends who are in totally different industries, we have all of their exact same problems. We're not as smart as we think we are. So, um, Dan, one of the hilarious examples in your article of a surprising sort of what kind of thing had to do with Google. And you said that they have like, they really focus on ops and security practices. But you mentioned the letter Z and how the letter Z sort of throws a monkey wrench into that whole perception. Could you tell that story? 
So I've heard this story from a couple different people, and I'm not 100% sure it's true, actually, but it sounds plausible. Uh, and the people who told me the story are at least pretty credible. Uh, but yeah, so I was looking at the code base, right? So I used to work at Google, and you see all these things with Z at the end. Like, there's, like, stream Z, and there's, like, metric Z, and if you want to add, like, a, I don't know, this sort of performance count or something, you put a Z at the end of it. And so I started asking, well, why is there a Z? And most people like, had no idea, right? But I started asking people around for a long time, they're like, oh, yeah, so that was from back when we wanted to expose counters. Uh, so that, yeah, you have uh, an HTTP connection. Sorry, want to expose counters? So, like, if you want to see how many, I don't know, for, like, a network thing, how many packets have been sent, or for, you know, a website, like, how many hits have gone through it, or, or whatever, right, how many cache hits, how many cache misses on some cache, or whatever, um, you can go to, like, you know, the name of the service slash something Z, right? And I'm told the reason that was done is that it was, like, for security, because uh, if you just had, like, a thing that was, like, uh, I don't know, google.com slash counter, uh, that would be, like, totally insecure, right? But if you put a Z behind it, like, no one guessed that, and that would be secure. And, you know, if, if this is true, this must have been a long time ago, like, 1999 or 2000 or something like that, right? Because Google is, like, really good about security now. They recently found this thing, actually, they informed us and Amazon uh, that Intel CPUs had this, like, horrible bug where inside the VM you could lock up the CPU. Uh, and this is terrible for if you're running a cloud service, right? And they found this, right? And this is pretty common. Like, it's pretty common when there's, like, a really bad security flaw. They find it and go inform other people. Um, and so they're, like, I think at this point, well, at least in my opinion, they're sort of the best in the world at this kind of thing. And they went from somehow adding a Z at the end of something to make it more secure to having what is, like, I think pretty clearly the best security in the world. And that's something, that, like, I wish I was around when that happened, right? Because I'm pretty curious, like, how they actually made that change. Um, but I've heard that part of it was... They were severely compromised, and this made them get serious, right? They, they've always had good security people, but like something that often happens, I think a lot of companies, the security people say, oh, we should do this, or you, sh- you can't do that, you shouldn't do this. And then the product people are like, well, yeah, that's a good idea, but like we really need to grow the product. And at one point, uh, I'm told another story was that uh, they were so compromised that you came in, uh, had a pile of laptops. They just said, put your laptop in this pile, take one from this pile, because uh, they knew they were completely owned, right? And this cause security to uh, basically gain more political power, right? And become able to like stop, stop these things in the future. That's interesting. amazing that Google once did security through obscurity. That's just stunning. They were scrappy too once. It's interesting that you can have really good people, but not everyone gets listened to. There's always way more things that we should do than we can do. So changing who gets listened to makes a big difference. Yeah, it's actually pretty interesting. So I'm at Microsoft right now, and we're trying to have SREs like Google has SREs. So Google SREs, I think, are super interesting. They have this sort of antagonistic, in a good way, relationship with developers, right? They can choose not to support a feature. Like, in the most extreme case, SREs can stop supporting a team. Uh, and that team site reliability engineer? Yeah, so I, I guess you would call this DevOps in a lot of places, right? Um, but yeah, if SREs choose to support a team, and let's say the manager made this decision, right, the, the team will be upset, and the manager will probably lose his people, right? Because no one really wants to be on call all the time, and SREs basically take the on-call, and they'll handle issues as they come up, and they do a lot of automation to prevent issues from actually like having to get mitigated you know, by hand. And so because they have this power, right, to just walk away from anything, they can just say, you know, no, you, you can't do this, right? So they demand you have run books, right? Like, there must be instructions for how to handle this kind of stuff, right? Uh, they get trained up with developers, so they can really debug the code, and they do all this stuff to, like, help reliability, right? Because they're not responsible for features, they can add monitoring, they can add automated mitigation, they can do all this stuff, right? And at Microsoft, it depends on who you talk to, but most managers that I talk to don't believe this is possible. Like, they believe that, like, devs should just be in charge of the product. Uh, and so our, our ops organization inside Azure recently renamed itself to SRE. The role has not really changed yet. They're trying to change it. Uh, but there's this, like, big fight, right, between managers who believe that, you know, no one except for devs could possibly understand the code well enough uh, to actually, you know, go debug things and, like, when things go down, actually go fix it, to this org that is hiring external SREs and, like, trying to build this expertise, right? And even if they can do it, it's not clear that they actually politically can do it. Uh, so I don't know. This is sort of a, a weird thing, but I think this probably happens everywhere where you sort of have this like transition from, let's say, just a dev culture where you have support everything to sort of an SRE culture where you have people just in charge of automation reliability and that kind of stuff. Wait, so SREs are like magical fairies that take away on-call and fix bugs, and they have the freedom to go from team to team and will leave your team if you make it too hard for them? <laughs> I guess that sounds about right. I mean, so I, I guess want the, the that thing job. is, <laughs> the only thing is, I guess it takes a little, it takes a lot of time to move from team to team because, like, the SREs that I know of, they sort of train up with a number of different teams, so they're like intimately familiar with the product, right? As familiar as devs are in that product. But yeah, the job sounds super cool, right? And something that I wish I did at Google that I didn't is they have this rotation, it's a six months program, uh, where they train you as an SRE and you work as an SRE for six months. I think the reason they do this is to trick people into becoming SREs because people don't mostly want to 
be on call, right? Uh, but so they do. They give you this program. Uh, I think they even pay you a little bit more while you're doing it. And I think like about half the people convert to SREs. So this is sort of one of their sources of SREs, right? They're like, oh, you know, you don't really have to do this. It, you know, in the long run, you can just try it out. And it turns out a lot of people actually do enjoy doing it. Sweet. Yeah, I love just not adding features and just instead making things more reliable and like adding monitoring and all those little things that get missed. But finding a a place that values that is trickier. So at my work, we do a lot of monitoring. We have Monit in place. We have all these things in place. We use Datadog. We use Sumo Logic. And um, we're trying to get better about this. But one of the problems we have is that we get so many notifications that it's hard to figure out which ones are actually relevant, which ones are actually trying to tell me something. I don't know how many emails I get a day telling me how many Ubuntu packages are ready to be upgraded on Server X. And you talk about that a little bit in your blog post about people who turn off notifications because there are too many of them and they're too annoying. So we end up missing things. So what are your thoughts around that process, Dan? So I, I think this affects not just like kind of stuff when we talk about like reliability and uptime and that kind of stuff, but it affects like all of software, right? Like my friends who are not technical, uh, they're running an installer. And this is especially bad if they're not technical and they're, they're on some relatively nice distribution of Linux, right? And the installer will have like 14 warnings and three errors. And then it will still work, right? Uh, so they'll be like, well, you know, slash temp slash whatever slash W3X513 you know, couldn't be created. Is that bad? You know, they have no idea, right? And I'm a developer and I have no idea either. I have to go dig into these errors. And I, I don't write because most of the time, 99% of the time you have these errors, nothing is wrong, right? Everything is fine. This happens to me at work too. There's a script I regularly run. It has 71 warnings. Uh, I, I sort of glance at the warnings. Uh, the number increases to 72. I try to find out where the new one is, but it's like basically impossible to tell what's going on, right? And so you just get in the habit of ignoring these errors. And you can't not do it, right? Like people might say that you should inspect every one, but this is literally impossible, right? Like if I did this at work, I would not have enough hours in the day to even run four scripts, right? Because we have so many things that just eject noise, like just right into your face, right? And then this is a thing that happens also, like, like in medicine, this is like well-studied, right? I, I don't know if you've been in hospital. I was hospitalized for a while. It's not a great experience. But one thing is there's just this like constant beeping, right? There's like the beeping of things that are doing things that are normal. I, I think that there's stuff that just beeps. It's like beep, beep, beep. That's fine, right? And then these sort of alarms go off. I forgot this, what the story of the ventilator was, actually. So I should go look this up. I, I should read my own blog post. Oh, that was the one where there was an anesthesiologist who turned off a ventilator and thought he turned it back on, but he didn't turn it back on. And so the patient went into a vegetative state for lack of oxygen. And the reason that he wasn't alerted to the ventilator being off was that someone had turned off the beeping. Because the beeping was annoying. Beeping is annoying. Oh my gosh, I've walked out of restaurants because they haven't turned off their beeping fry cooker thinger. <laughs> That's harder to do in a hospital. You're kind of stuck. And you've got all those wires and tubes attached to you. You're like, who's in charge here? Right. So when our software beeps constantly, then we stop listening to the beeping. And that is like the biggest challenge, or challenge the biggest challenge of monitoring and alerting is to find the actionable alerts. We have Slack integration for our monitoring tools now, so we have entire channels devoted to, hey, something's happening that maybe you want to look at. And we've gotten to the point now where it's like, oh, I've seen that error before. It's no big deal versus, oh, that's a new error. I better look at that. It's almost worse. I mean, you get kind of used to things being wrong, and then that deviance is normalized. We did something kind of weird, and I still feel kind of weird about it. We now are suppressing alerts for what we call expected errors. It's like sometimes things just go wrong, and when they go wrong, they go wrong in this place or that place. So if they do, don't throw an exception. Just log it and move on. <laughs> that makes me feel a little dirty. Oh, that's so interesting. I don't, this is one of those things where I think I'm the unreasonable person, right? When we get like compile warnings or like any kind of warning, I'm like, you know, we need to fix this, right? The warning needs to go away permanently. We cannot have this. And I think people sort of, you know, roll their eyes when I say this, right? Because I, I say this so much. But, like, it just drives me nuts that we just have all these warnings all the time. And, you know, I'm sort of making a difference, but there's still way too many of these to actually fix. And, it, I don't know, it just bugs me. It's one of those things that fixing one of them makes no difference. But you don't realize how different your life might be if they were all gone. Because then... It, you, you'd be able to like notice things that actually are wrong. It's a high cost to get to you don't know where. Just like implementing yeah, version control. Yeah, I'm super happy with projects where you know it's sort of clean on warning, clean on lint, right? And anytime there's a warning, you immediately know it's like potentially a serious problem. You can go and you fix it, and you go back from you know one warning to like zero warnings, right? That's great. But I think that like 
a lot of environments, people have literally never seen that, right? So, it, like, it's hard to, like, describe the upside of this, actually, if you've never seen a case where you don't just have, you know, 440 warnings or something. That's true. It's kind of weird uh, when you work with someone who's never worked anywhere else, or it's got to be a large number of people who've never worked anywhere else. They can be used to things that people with a variety of experience are shocked by. And it's um, something I'm touching on in a chapter I'm working on for my book right now, The, um, the Compassionate Coder, um, and that is taking advantage of that time when you've just hired a new developer and they're seeing your entire system for the first time and they're reacting to it honestly and openly. Because like a very canary soon, in a coal mine. Yeah, very uh-huh. soon they're going to be conditioned that this is normal and that mythology around the code base is going to be repeated to them enough times that they're going to start believing it and they're not going to make value judgments anymore. So that time when they're new and they're looking at things with fresh eyes and asking questions like, why is it, why are you doing this? Or why is there a Z on the end of this thing? That's a really valuable time and you really need to take advantage of that and learn as much about your code base and your operations and processes as you possibly can during that time because it is really short. Right, before they fix two warnings, and then nobody gives a crap about those two, and so they stop fixing warnings. Exactly. Yeah, I'm mentoring someone right now, someone who just joined oh, probably three weeks ago, and I can just see, he doesn't often object very strongly to these things. I can see this look on his face where he's like telling me with his face, what are you doing? Is it actually possible you have this practice? And I sort of make a note of these things, right? We unfortunately are, are too busy to fix these things, which is why we have them in the first place, but at some point, hopefully, we have the time to go down this list and go fix all these things that new people just sort of make faces about, right? I feel like a part of the resistance to fixing stuff like this comes, it's, it's the self-reinforcing cycle of a lack of maturity in fixing those little things. Like, if you're not used to fixing those little niggling warnings and things like that, then, you know, you, you go one day and think, you know what, I'm going to make a change. And New Year's Day, I'm going to make a resolution, I'm going to make a change. And you go to fix one of those little warnings. And it turns into this monstrous rabbit hole of tracking people down, you know, of like reading up on, you know, reading up on the sources of, of these warnings and digging into systems and tracking people down to ask them if it's okay to change something, you know, getting approval. And, you know, I feel like there's a level of resistance that builds up just because we don't have maturity around, you know, very quickly and executively dealing with a new warning that's popping up or a new issue that that we haven't had before. True. When there's no process to fix these things, you're establishing that process at the same time, which is really hard to do when you're new and you don't know anybody. Uh, One thing I do when I'm new at a place is spend an inordinate amount of time fixing something like that. Like I hit this error and it didn't make any sense and gosh darn it, I'm going to make that error make sense for the next person, even if I have to like spend a day or two on it. And that day or two is really spent building a model of the system that I'm trying to make a change in. And I just have to step back and say, I actually spent a couple days building a model of this system and that is going to be useful later beyond this tiny little change that I'm leaving a breadcrumb for somebody behind me. I think that part of it might be that we become sort of used to or immune to weak signals and that new people, when you have that energy and enthusiasm without the context, you don't know what's a weak signal, what's a strong signal. So we're able to respond differently toward those sort of factors um, at that point in time. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think it's a great point about about weak signals. Yeah. so like when we're when you're new, they're not noise yet. Like everything is urgent. So yeah, and it's tough. I mean, I I feel like the ideal is to eliminate noise as much as possible because then and then you don't have to sort these things out as much. But very difficult. And I, I mean, I'm not like dealing with this in a organizational context right now. But I feel like all this stuff is sort of fractal. It, it scales up and down to you know organizations and and then down to like things like families and, and personal life. Like. I'm trying to eliminate some of these same types of issues just in in my personal life by devoting a certain amount of time to like fixing things every day, fixing things or dealing with administrative tasks. And, you know, and it it seems to make a huge difference. The fact that I devote time to it every day because it's that maturity level. It's that, you know, that ability to say, okay, here's, here's a signal. I'm so used to dealing with new signals at this point that I can just, you know, bang, bang, bang. I can figure out what I'm going to do about it and I can do it and I can be done with it. But if you save them up, you know, if you build that pile of issues that need to be dealt with 
of, you know, that huge bin of mail that includes both urgent bills somewhere in there and a whole ton of mail that you're just going to throw away when you go through it. You, you know, that big mix of signals, you know, it's a lot harder to, to deal with. It seems like I don't know any other way of coping with these things other than being very habitual about it, being very daily about it. That's a good point. We don't have time to do all these things, but the fact that we don't have time to do all these things leads to us not spending any time doing any of them. And you can set aside a specific amount of time. Sometimes hack days at work wind up being spent on stuff like this. I know I did my last one. You can set aside a specific amount of time to pick something out of that list and do it. And that can increase your productivity in the time that you're spending working on features. So I'm sort of curious how people uh, who are a place where you can do this have, have like seen this change happen so you can do this. There's an org that I, I sometimes work with uh, and they have one day a month that do the right thing and managers are like really excited when they tell them about this. They're like, oh yeah, people go up and clean up all this technical debt. They do all these great things, right? But when I talk to ICs, like individual contributors, one of them tells me he just laughs every time it, this pops up on his calendar, right? It's sort of a joke. Uh, so they sort of want to have this time, but it's they're unable to actually make this happen, right? And sort of, I feel like a lot of changes to fix these things are sort of like this, right? People are like, oh, we should do this. This will be great. Uh, but somehow the message gets lost as it goes down and it becomes a sort of joke instead of a thing that people actually do. I haven't had that experience. I've had, I've had good experiences with hack days like Jessica was talking about or, you know, like 10% time or 20% time. Uh, those things have worked pretty well for me, but I have generally seen those work in organizations where people feel like their contributions matter and they do feel respected and listened to. So I imagine if there's some kind of disconnect between management and engineering, that sort of, you know, an attitude of like, well, it doesn't matter, or wow, this is not important, or they're not really sincere, could creep in and, and like ruin that. But there might be a case of like, depending on the organization, sometimes change needs to come from above and sometimes it needs to come from below. And I think some of that might be an organizational dynamic that maybe you haven't experienced in the same way that I have, Dan. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, that makes sense. Like, certainly some of the organizations I work with or have been in have been, I don't know, dysfunctional is too strong a word, uh, but there's this disconnect between management and ICs that like, sort of, it, it makes it hard for, I guess, any message to get through. I yeah. feel like there's a, there's like an upper bound, a, a lower bound of periodicity beyond which all advantage of momentum goes away. I mean, don't even talk to me about, about monthly habits. I think at the point of, of, of a monthly thing, every time, for me anyway, every time feels like the first time again. I can address that. Like I have some tasks that I have scheduled for myself monthly and, and, and okay, I can do a little bit of documentation around them to remind myself what to do and it helps a little bit, but it's still, it's like getting to the very edge of that, of that zone of this is actually a habit versus something that I drag myself into doing one more time every time, except it actually winds up being every three months. Weekly, eh, weekly you can sort of have a habit, I think, but it's, Weekly, you have a routine. Monthly, yeah. you have a reminder. Yeah, but monthly barely works for me. I feel like just with human nature, it's hard to have a real habit. It's hard to have momentum once you do less than like once a week. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. I think that um, we can condition ourselves with tools in periods that are probably longer than a day. I would totally agree with that. So, yeah, maybe it was like once a month we're going to do the right thing. Maybe the manager instead should have focused more on making sure that we're doing the right things as we go. Damn. And then when you consider that, you know, a lot of agile iterations are still longer than a week, you know, still two weeks or, or even a month and the issues. Dan, I have one example. I was thinking about have I been in a company that made that transition, and there was one. It was a little catalog retailer, and to replace the point of sale system, they pretty much hired a new team. They got one Java developer who had worked there before, and then they hired two more of us, which, so they got new people who knew each other, had worked together before, so we had kind of this, this standard of how things are done, and then management didn't know anything about Java. They were totally clueless and they knew it, which is great. Uh, so we were able to establish new practices and do things differently than the other teams and the other teams picked some things up from us and some things that didn't. So in that case, it was kind of an overwhelming number of new people who worked well as a team. 
Oh, that's interesting. It actually reminds me of something. Sorry, I don't mean to change the subject. But it reminds me of something a friend of mine was just telling me. Um, he co-founded a startup with a few other people, and they now have, I believe, four or five employees. And this is something I've also noticed. And something this wasn't in this blog post, but I still found it to be striking. Where it's like it's very hard to both get and give feedback, right? Like I've basically never had negative feedback in my career, and it's not because I'm like amazing. I, I do all kinds of stuff wrong, right? But like people are sort of. In general, I think sort of hasn't to give negative feedback, right? Because they're afraid it might demoralize you or, or something like that, right? Uh, so anyway, this friend of mine, the startup, he, he mentioned that when they first started, it was like very awkward uh, for them to give feedback, and it was like very hard to do it. And now they're they're able to do it and sort of be not brutal, but like just be like totally honest, right? And everyone takes it in stride, and it works fine. Uh, so they'll be like, oh, this email you sent out to the company was like pretty inane. You sort of went on about this thing. Uh, please don't do that. It was not helpful. Or you know, this code just you know really sucked, right? Uh, bad for this reason, bad for this reason, whatever, right? And no one takes it personally. And even at this company, right, the three of them, like the co-founders, they can talk about this. But they don't do this with other people because they have not figured out how to do this with other people. And I feel like there's this effect you get when you work with someone for a long time, like where it's easier to like both give and take feedback, right? And it's, I don't know. I mean, ideally, you'd be able to do this with new people, right? But I don't know if any place that does this. I know Bridgewater tries to do this uh, but <laughs> in the sense that like you can just give straight feedback. And they're known for being brutal. Like interns often cry in meetings, right? Because like people are not used to having totally honest feedback. Uh, so when you, if you actually do do this, uh, it's really quite strange. And like people really start crying, right? And so it's like, I don't know. It seems like really tough to do this with a team that isn't just isn't really used to each other. I guess. I think there are ways to do it without making people cry too. I mean, in theater, there's something called a shit sandwich where you're like, you did a really good job of you know in that monologue. I thought that your intonation was not as good as it could have been, but it seems like you're really drawn to this part, and I think that's great. So you you take two good things and you put something bad in the middle of it, and that softens the blow some. So it's possible to be humane and empathetic and still give objective feedback. I don't think it's a matter of people getting used to being made to cry. So that's the, yes. And that's, that's the negative feedback in a very small context of surrounded by compliments. But I think when Dan gave that example of the three founders who could say anything to each other, that's because they're doing that from a place of acceptance, of they know the other person respects them, wants them around, values them, And so when you make a comment about the email, it's just about the email. It's not about you as a person. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's like hard to like – this is a reason I basically never give negative feedback to people, right? It's hard to differentiate between, hey, this specific piece of work uh, had a problem and you suck as a human being, right? Right. It's really hard to hear that and not make it personal until you have the relationship built that you know you're accepted and valued as a person. And we need that. I and mean, we need to establish that kind of relationship so that we can give negative feedback because not giving negative feedback is like swallowing exceptions. But Jessica, we're beings of pure logic and reason. We don't need emotions or empathy. <laughs> That's didn't, you, we can... didn't you read the job description? Come on. <laughs> yeah, it's strange how um, the article that Dan linked to by Yosef K is called, You Can Read Your Manager's Mind or something like that. And the fact is, we're so used to with the computers, we get exactly what we ask for. And that's frustrating. But with people, we don't get what we ask for. We're actually likely to get what we want, whether what we want is useful or not. Sure. So um, to kind of like bring us back, I guess, on the topic, we've been talking around the idea of normalization of deviance quite a bit. And we've talked about some specific examples, but we haven't talked about, we haven't really gotten into like how to prevent like it's easy to say oh my god that organization is so weird they do this weird thing they don't have source control they don't do this they put z's on the end of things but we are guilty of these things as well so what are things that we can do as individual contributors as maybe managers or technical leads what kind of things can we do to prevent really weird stupid things from just going unnoticed in our organizations so there's this paper that I link to uh, that I like a lot by, by John Benja. You know, he works you know, in healthcare, and he, he gives this list of things. I think it's actually hard to implement the list, but his list is you know, pay attention to weak signals, which we talked about, uh, resist the urge to be unreasonably optimistic, which I guess makes sense, uh, teach employees how to conduct emotionally uncomfortable conversations, which we just talked about, uh, system operators need to feel safe in speaking up, which is, I think, related to what we just talked about, and realize that oversight and monitoring are never-ending. My feeling is like this list makes a lot of sense, right? But it's like incredibly hard to do. And organizations are often like, and people are incentivized to do the opposite, right? Like just looking at the, let's say, resist the urge to be unreasonably optimistic. 
uh, most of the people I know that have had like really great careers, like as in they've been promoted up to like you know technical fellow or distinguished engineer or something like that, they're like very optimistic. I mean, maybe they don't feel that way, and if you talk to them sort of candidly, right, they will tell you what's wrong with their project, what's wrong with things, right. But if you want to get promoted, you don't say, hey, I did this project and it screwed up in these 14 ways, right. You're like, hey, I did this thing, it's great, it's great for the company, it's like super amazing, and so this is sort of something that like. We sort of we set companies up to like have people not do these things, and I, I don't know how to fix that. Right? That seems like as as an IC, right? Something that's like extremely hard to actually change. Because those people who got promoted to fellows who who did these amazing things by being optimistic and ignoring a bunch of failure paths, they also got lucky, and those failure paths didn't happen to ruin the company. I love that they didn't happen to ruin the company. That's <laughs> that is so cool. Right, right. So if you but. If you want to be at the tippy top, you need to be good at what you do and lucky. But what we need, I think, as an industry is a lot of people who are not reaching that pinnacle of I did an amazing amount of stuff and I got lucky it didn't break, but a lot of people who are I did a useful amount of stuff and it didn't break because I took all these precautions yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And there's something else. There's a friend of mine who's a technical fellow. Uh, well, he later left to found his own company, but he's a technical fellow at one of these large companies. And he told me the story of how he got there. And part of it is he just did really great work, right? The, the guy's a genius and you know, so on and so forth. But like, the individual pieces of the story, some of them are quite disturbing. And I think this is just normal, though. Like, I've talked to other people at, you know, at similar levels, and they tell me the same story. So like, once upon a time, he was on this project. I'll call it System A. And then another part of the company, System B, was being created. Um, and System A was a small thing. It's supposed to be pretty good. This is a hardware company. This is in the early days of, not that early, but the relatively early days of hardware. So people don't know like, where the boundary between the operating system and hardware should be and all this stuff. So it's, it's like pretty complicated. There's a high failure rate. And so System B is going like, to save the world. Right? It's going to do everything. It's going to be like the one system that everyone in the company uses. Uh, so as this is going on, this guy notices, he's like, System B can never possibly succeed. This is too complicated. It's going to fail for sure. We'll make System A like, simple and, and it'll, it'll be fine. Uh, but so what happens is he gets pressure from upper management. At this point, he was not yet a technical fellow. And upper management says, well, you know, we should merge System A and System B, right? System A just does what System B does, uh, but it only does one part of it. So this is redundant, right? And so how he's able to fight this is he just lies. It's like constant lies. So it's like a stream of lies coming from him to upper management. It's like, oh, yeah, the product is basically done. You really shouldn't cancel it, right? It'll be done next week, actually. <laughs> and, you know, it's like six months away from being done, right? It's like, oh, yeah, no, things are great. Uh, we've basically shipped it. You know, we've, like, tested the initial version. Everything is fine. When, in fact, it's just falling apart, right? And eventually System B does fall apart. He's right. Uh, because System A wasn't merged in, System A does not fall apart. You know, it actually ends up being successful. You know, it's a little bit late because, uh, you know, no one knows what they're doing. It's research, right? Uh, so it's not surprising it's late. But had he not just lied to upper management, his project would have been canned. And, and this is like a story that I hear relatively often about people who like lead projects at a high level. I mean, I don't think you see this in startups, right? Uh, where everyone knows everyone else and you would immediately see through the lies, right? But a company of like 50, 100,000 people, like no one really knows what's going on. And so there's sort of this like screen of disinformation. And, and people I know who are like are very high up, like VP level, or whatever, like it's sort of their job to generate this disinformation, right? And this information is always like, negative about someone else, but positive about their own project. I find this to be super depressing, and I think it's one reason I'd never become a manager. But, like, I don't know. This actually works, uh, which is why people do it. It's almost telling the truth by lying, because they really needed to not cancel System A, but he couldn't tell them the real reasons for that, so he made up some other reason that would get the company to the truth through lies. (laughs) Yeah... Jessica, yeah, I can't called... wait for your television pilot to come out. <laughs> <laughs> Has anybody else read the the article, The Thermocline of Truth? I'm not sure exactly how related it is, but what we were just saying reminded me of, of this a little bit. There's this article from 2008 talking about how in large organizations there is what the author calls a thermocline of truth. A thermocline, the thermocline is the point in, in ocean water where the temperature suddenly drops off. You have like all this really cold water coming up most of the way to the surface, and then, then there's this thermocline where it's a, an area of quick change, and then uh, at the top it's, it's quite warm. And they were talking about how oh Jessica in the chat is saying that it's an inflection point. And yes, it's an inflection point. And, and the, the article talks about how in a lot of organizations there is this thermocline of truth past which truth does not survive <laughs> up towards the, the top layers of the organization. This is something I've also found super interesting. Like, I often tell my managers problems I'm having, right, and problems that I think exist in the group. Like, if someone has a personal problem, they don't want to mention it. I won't talk about that, right, but just, like, systemic problems. And... Well, it depends, but almost all managers, there's one exception, but almost managers seem like really thankful. Like they'll say thank you. And it's not, I don't think they're just saying it right. Their tone of voice is like, wow, uh, thank you for telling me this. This is great. And often it's problems that have existed for like weeks or months, right? And just no one has told them because there's this sort of, I don't know why, but 
things people regularly chat about around the lunch table just don't make it to managers, and it's like this is like a serious problem. And I, you know, again, I don't know of a general solution. I mean, I personally try to like bubble up problems that I think are important, but apparently people are hesitant to do this. If you have a culture that is really strongly about enforcing the status quo, then people are not going to want to challenge the status quo. If you have a culture where people are encouraged and rewarded for speaking up, then you're going to get more of that behavior. It's a matter of, it's a cultural question, really. And I think larger companies tend to face status quo, which is why smaller companies think that they have an advantage over larger companies because they're more willing to challenge things. Whether that's actually true or not is up for debate, but that's the theory. No, that's fair. I mean, I think I've also been extremely lucky or I guess privileged also, right, in the sense that with, I think, again, one exception, I've had like extremely good managers who they, they take the feedback seriously and they sort of act on it. And when I talk to a lot of my friends, they do not have this, right? They sort of get smacked down when they bring up problems. And if you've had this happen to you like a number of times in your career, you'll just stop doing this with a new manager because you just will assume they're sort of the same. And I, I don't know why I've been so lucky. And I think that's you know nothing that I've done in particular, right? It's just the managers I've had. I've noticed a difference between especially at large companies, people who expect to work at that company for life versus people who are like, well, I'm a senior software dev. If uh, I don't like it here, I'll just go somewhere else because there's a zillion jobs for Java people in a willingness to speak up. The people who are there for life are all about, no, I just need to make sure my job stays. And I'm like, no, look, this is happening and this is happening. So do something about it or don't. But the worst case for me is I go get another job and that's not so bad. Yeah, I think that with the industry being the way it is with um, the availability of jobs, people are not as willing to try and make an impact on company culture as they would ordinarily have been or would have been under different circumstances because they're like, oh, it's not good for me anymore. I'll just move on. That's not a big deal for me. That's true. That's another consideration. And for me, it's like I'm going to make this effort to change the culture. And if it doesn't take, then I'm going to move on. But I'm willing to take this risk even at great political cost. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I find myself either... in, the same, in the same position because mm. I have a conscience and I want things to be good for other people, not just me. So, Right. And best case, and sometimes, then we get this sort of – I mean that's – I'm acting irrationally in terms of my interests if I want to stay at that job. But there's a possible but unlikely very high payout of we really do have culture change and it gets better for everyone and then we stay and everything's better. I would say, Jessica, you and I are at similar points in our careers, and we have a lot of capital. We have yeah. a lot of privilege that comes along yeah. with that. So I feel like it's my responsibility to leverage that privilege to make things better, to make, to make a difference in a company culture, because I have the capital to spend, and other people do not. That's a great point. I see this pattern from the manager side in parenting. You know, I, I, can, I can watch as, as my kids transition from you know we, we tell them what we say to them is you know you, sh- you can always talk to us about anything but then I can watch when one will start like hiding mistakes they made or hiding like something that they broke and it takes a tremendous amount of mindfulness you know very deliberate mindfulness to do make that transition from you know from observing that okay, now they're hiding things that they broke so now they're now their behavior is even worse to make that translation to okay, they're hiding something that they broke. That means not only did they do something that they shouldn't, you know, get into something they shouldn't have been getting into, but they also clearly perceive that the disincentive to actually talking to me is so high that it's better to try and hide it than to come and talk to me about it. You know, and it's very easy to just jump straight to, oh, now they're even worse. Now they're not even, now they're, they're doing bad things and not telling me about it. Short version, parents make better managers. Well, it gives us an opportunity. I don't know if if we necessarily make better, if we (laughs) necessarily uh, act on the opportunity. I guess I guess my only point there is that it is really difficult from the the manager side of things to look at that situation and say, "Oh, this is my problem," instead of "Oh, this is their problem that they didn't tell me." Right. So, is there anything else that we should talk about before we get to picks? Dan, did we cover pretty much everything that you had in mind? 
There's sort of one question I have, which is when you're shopping for jobs, so you mentioned this, and I think this is true, like a lot of us are pretty privileged, and if a situation becomes really bad in some sense, we can just leave, right? But you're shopping for jobs, how do you find one that sort of doesn't have these problems, right? I mean, well, maybe it's your sort of your dream to go into a place that's, you know, sort of messed up and fix the problems, right? But I think a lot of us, uh, we just want to find a place that, you know, we sort of like, and we can make it better, but like it should have a baseline of being sort of reasonably good, right? I, I, I feel like I sort of lucked into two places really good, and in the third case, I got into a place that is not what I would have gotten into had I known what it was, but it's quite hard to actually, at least in my experience, it's very hard to actually find out what's going on inside a company, right? So if you ask them, this is an example of something that's like pretty obvious, right? Uh, but if you ask them, are the hours flexible? Literally every company I've talked to will say yes. If you ask them the details, uh, well, you know, the answer at uh, a company, well, I think this has changed. So at this one particular office uh, at Intel in Austin, uh, the answer I got was, oh, yeah, yeah, we're very flexible. Um, and I asked, you know, when can people come in? And the answer was any time before 9 a.m. Some people come in as early as 6 a.m. And I'm thinking, oh, it's interesting, right? Uh, my schedule is limited by this meeting I have at uh, 2 p.m. on Tuesdays that I have to be in for. Otherwise, I can be in at any time. And, you know, these people think that, like, before 9 a.m., this is, like, a lot of flexibility, right? And it is compared to, like, IBM in 1980, right, where, you know, you couldn't really come in early even, right? So it's sort of... I don't know. Like, I feel like people always sort of have a positive answer, and I think they believe it, right? It's not like they're lying to you. If they're lying to you, maybe you could figure it out. But they're like, oh, no, no, this is actually totally fine. We're, like, great at this. And then they give, you know, if you actually press for details, they give you this answer. It's, like, funny, and you'll find out they use version control or whatever. But it's, like, hard to just find out while, like, you know, whatever, talking in an interview. Yeah, yeah I have some tips on that um, because I, I give a lot of advice to new people, people who are early career. And um, so being explicit and asking for details, I think is really important. Also talking to people who either work there now or have worked there to find out some like direct experiences that they've had um, and things that maybe they think could be better or things that are great. I also like to ask questions of the people who are interviewing me because interviews are two-way, right? So I will say like, so what is something about the company that really annoys you that you really like to change and how would you go about changing it? I'm kind of turning some of those questions around because, of course, there's something. And if they say, oh, nothing, it's great here, then you know they're lying to you. And you can use that as information, use that as data. Another thing that I found really useful is that I take the interview process as a reflection of what the company culture is. So if there are really great things that they do during the interview process, like to make me feel really welcome or to make me to make sure that I'm not like highly stressed out or like I'm in a pairing situation, I want to make make sure that I feel like I'm able to contribute in a good way. Um, those are reflections of the culture. Interviews do not happen in isolation. So I use everything that happens to me through an interview process as a data point to extrapolate what it's going to be like working there. Oh, that's interesting. Do you feel like the connection between sort of the interview process and the actual work is like closer to a small company than a big company. Like my impression at large companies is some of them have this interview process that's very smooth because there's an org basically designed to do that. Uh, but that org doesn't get to affect the day-to-day -day process. And the reverse happens too. The interview process can be a total mess, uh, again, because this org basically runs this. Uh, but at small companies, I think that's, you know, it is basically true actually now that I think about it, that places with good interview process are also generally places that you sort of want to work. It probably is different for really large companies where there are people who are dedicated to making the interview process smooth as possible. They're probably isolating you from the culture to a degree there. So I would agree with that. It does I, seem like if you, you send them an email after your interview and you don't get an email back for you know a week or two, that does seem like an indication, if nothing else, of how they handle weak, weak signals. Yeah, and how they, um, how they value your time or how they value your emotional state. Right. So all this just um, leads me to my favorite conclusion, and that is that um, the hard part of doing software is the people parts, because very little of what we talked about today has anything to do with technical challenges or the fact that software and hardware need to talk to each other and don't use the same language or any of those sorts of things. This is all about people having to interact with people. That's what we need to get a hell of a lot better at as developers and professionals to advance our industry. And choosing what to do is a lot harder than figuring out how to do it. Yeah, definitely. We did talk about uh, having routines and setting aside time for that list of things that you should do, but you never really have time to do and you'll never do all of them. That's something implementable. Yeah. Yeah, but you've got to be really disciplined about it. You can't, they just can't be subject to um, emergencies. I mean... Except in the most extreme cases, maybe, you know, you can't have them be, oh, we'll push this, you know, push this back because we got a deadline. I mean, the only way I've been able to to start dealing with some of this stuff 
in my own life is have basically I have time I have time for improving things and I and and I also have a t- piece of time set aside every day for for like administrative stuff and that time during that that hour that is the only time only thing that I I'm allowed to do I am not allowed to work on creative work and I'm also not allowed to work on admin work before that but uh you know it's it's and and all of my time is use it or lose it so if I don't get the thing done that I I was doing in my creative work time before that I don't get to say oh I have to push this back oh I have to push this back cuz all of it is you know, if anything I push back, that's pushing back against family time at the end of the day. So, you know, it's use it or lose it. And, and during that time, that's all you get to do. And I don't know any other way than to just be very disciplined like that, because otherwise stuff is always going to take precedence. The urgent, unimportant stuff, as, as Stephen Covey puts it, or even the urgent, important stuff. And everything is relative. So watch out in interviews, because adjectives like flexible can mean very different things to very different people. That was a good lesson. It's been absolutely great talking to you, Dan. This is um, this is a really interesting topic, and I'm really glad you wrote your blog post. And I'm really happy that we were able to talk to you about it on the show today. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for inviting me on the show. Okay, is it time for picks? I think so. Great. Coraline, do you have any picks? I have one pick today. It is a really, really cool project. It is called Octo Hat Rack. It is based on a concept called Let's All Build a Hat Rack, um, which is created by a person named Leslie Hawthorne. The idea is this. You go to GitHub and you see your contribution graph. And the contribution graphs are great. They show like every piece of code that you've changed. But there's a lot more to being a, an open source citizen than sending in pull requests. So these GitHub graphs and metrics like that ignore a lot of the non-code contributions that people make. So Octo Hat Rack is an attempt to rectify that situation. With Octo Hat Rack, um, you give it a GitHub repo name. And it returns a list of every GitHub user that has ever interacted with a project but has not necessarily committed code. Those interactions include raising or commenting on an issue, commenting on a pull request, commenting on a commit, all these sort of social interactions. And GitHub says it's for social coding, but we like ignore and don't, don't measure the social interactions. So that's what OctoHatRat does. It generates an HTML representation of contributors who have done technical contributions as well as non-technical contributions with thumbnail images. And it's something you can embed on your page, which is really, really cool. So I like the idea of rewarding good citizenship in open source. It's something that's very close to my heart. And um, I want to start valuing um, non-code contributions more. And so I think um, Octo Hat Rack is a great step in that direction. So that is my pick. Sweet. Afti? I think I just have one pick today. I will pick the Audible book that I just finished this, this morning on this morning's run. And uh, actually, it's not a book. It is a course. It's a series of lectures. So one of the cool things about Audible is that not only do they have books now, but they also have a ton of lectures from the Great Courses series. So maybe you've seen that catalog um, at some point where they have all these university courses that you can order on CD, but uh, Audible has them now. Anyway, I listened to Einstein's Relativity and the Quantum Revolution, Modern Physics for Non-Scientists by Professor Richard Wolfson. And it has been just a terrific high-level introduction to all of the physics that I never got around to catching up on in a very non-scientist-friendly way, non-mathematician-friendly way. There's, like, no math in it. It's just a lot of good metaphors and a lot of great explanations for why things are the way they are and and where the the current state of the art is in understanding the universe. So, yeah, that's it. Sweet. I'll add one to that. And there was a cool article that I read today about how the theory of special relativity impacts GPS calculations. And you'd think relativity is, like, about light speed and things really far away, but no, like satellites and our phones are doing calculations involving relativity. So that's one of my picks. I also want to pick a talk by Katrina Owen from Bath Ruby last year and is called Here Be Dragons. And she shows some Ruby code that's entertaining and teaches some positive coding style things. And then she makes it about the motivation of whether to cooperate with your team members or to push your code forward in spite of its longer term impacts because that's what's rewarded by management. I think that's relevant to today's talk. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. I'm um, I'm speaking at Bath Ruby this year. I'm so excited about it by the way. Oh cool. Congratulations. Uh, Dan, have any picks? 
Oh, yeah. So there's a couple things. Um, I'll have to pick two things, right? Uh, so one thing I really like is there's a site, tweet.onebrandom.com. Uh, you can go to it, and it'll just give you a random tweet. You can press the button, you'll get another tweet. And I spent like 20 minutes just clicking on this and getting random tweets. And the thing I find interesting is that I never, like literally have never seen a tweet on this site that is like the kind of thing I'd see in my Twitter feed. So it sort of reminds me like how just, I guess, niche my interests are, right? Like, you know, I follow lots of people who have like tens of thousands of followers, right? So you sort of think like these people are like a big deal. This is like a large part of the world. But in fact, it's like tiny, right? And it, I don't know. I like to be reminded of this every once in a while. I click this again. I got this thing in French. It's some French, you know, video game I've ever heard of. And every time I click this, it's like a completely random thing that is just like super different from anything I, I normally experience. The other thing I like is there's this paper at, at ISCA this, uh, this past year. Um, so ISCA is a computer architecture conference. And it breaks down sort of Google's actual workloads. Like, what do they spend their time on? And one reason I like this is because it sort of blows through a lot of conventional wisdom about optimization. Um, like, for instance, a, a thing you commonly hear is you, you should go profile things and you go find the things that are hot and then go, you know, go reduce that, right? And they mentioned, like, the hottest 50 binaries take up, like, that's, like, about half of their cycles, right? Uh, the top 10 is, like, 10% of their cycles. And the same is true if you look at leaf functions or whatever, right? And so it's just sort of, in general, I, I like workload characterization papers because they sort of, I don't know, they, they sort of give you an idea of what's going on and it's a lot of work to actually do it yourself. So it's interesting to read in the paper. Oh, yeah, so the tweet.writer.com is possibly uh, not safe for work. I have not yet seen that happen, but it's literally a random tweet, so it could happen. No problem. Thank you for those picks. All right, thanks, everybody. This was a great episode. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Dan, what are you doing next? <laughs> you mean literally next going into work and uh, I have to check my meeting schedule to see if I have more meetings but probably uh, just trying to code and fix some you know add some tests you know the kind of stuff that I need to do but we sort of don't make time for well, well thanks so much for taking time with us and when someone wants to learn more about you or see what you're up to where should they go uh, okay so I blog at you know, danlu.com uh, this is just sort of random thoughts and then I suppose I sometimes tweet at, you know whatever at danlu that's cool we can link those in the show notes thank you so much Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit cachefly.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlay. 